Welcome back, everybody. This is week 34 of Creative Come Follow Me for the Old Testament. And we are in the heart of Psalms this week. So just like last week, we kicked things off and I taught you all about the Psalms. Hopefully, if you missed it, you will go back and watch at least the first five minutes or so of week 33, because that will give you a good, you know, synopsis of what the Psalms are for and why we study them. But honestly, one of my favorite messages about the Psalms came from this week's Come Follow Me manual. If you look in the introductory paragraphs, there's this sweet message that says, it's not that the people in the Old Testament didn't suffer with the same things we did about anxiety and fear and sin and all those things. It's that these Psalms helped them know where to look when they were suffering, whom to look to when they were in struggle. And honestly, that's what I found from the Psalms is that they are designed, they're almost like a glimpse into someone's journal where in the past we've been reading sort of historical accounts of what happened to the Jews. Now you get to kind of peek into their journal and see how they feel about what happened, how they dealt with the struggles they were encountering. And it's personal, it's intimate, it's beautifully done. It's a bit scattered, I should warn you. Some of them are written by David, we think, and some of them are written by who knows. So you want to kind of keep a wide lens when you imagine who the authors of these journal entries are. We don't know their gender, we don't know their age, we don't know their life circumstances. What I love is that it doesn't really matter what those answers are. The answers they got to their problems and their difficulties match what we get today. There's a, a unifying beauty in these psalms because we don't have to know their backstory to appreciate the doctrine that they are offering. I promise you're going to love it. I know it can get a little bit clunky at times, but as always, when you're going in the psalms, watch for things that will lead you to Jesus Christ. There's a lot in this week's study, not just about the Savior's life and his gospel, but also about the temple and about how we can come closer to him, especially in times of sadness or pleading. Oh, you guys, there's some good, good verses this week. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes, and let's get started. Similar to last week, there are a lot of Psalms to study this week. So uh, since I don't want to break them all up individually here in the video, I thought I would compile a few together that have similar themes. So our first one will be 49 and 50. And there are some incredible messages tucked into these verses. 49 to me feels like a, a call out. It's the first few verses talk about how the psalmist wants to like spread this message far and wide. And the message he's trying to get across is all about setting aside things of this world and hoping for things of a better. So if you look around the verses, like around six, they that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. I think it's easy to read this as wealth meaning money, and I'm sure it applies there as well. But I think it's also the assumption that we can build up a stockpile of good deeds that will buy our way into heaven. I think he's trying to warn against both, saying you can't purchase redemption for yourself or for somebody you love. There's only one way. It's this straight and narrow way. And it's powerful, right? When you look a little further, he talks about the worth of souls. So in eight, for the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceaseth forever. It's this understanding of your worth is not based on what you think your value is. It's based on what someone will pay for you. If you have ever like tried to list something on a garage sale site or something where you're trying to figure out what something is worth, it's not based on your own assumptions about it. It's based on what will people pay. And what I love about the gift of the atonement of Jesus Christ is basically what he's saying is your worth is infinite. He paid the ultimate price so that we could be redeemed. And so you are of infinite precious is how it says it in this verse, but you are of infinite precious worth. And that I think is actually really helpful if you're trying to set aside that temptation to covet. <laughs> if you're thinking about who you really are in the eternal worlds, then this mortal world isn't quite so jarring. You know, I, I think it's, he's trying to give us strength in order to keep this commandment, not just teach us about it. When you go a little further, you learn that he talks about how death is inevitable for everyone. It's this great equalizer, right? Every man will face death at some point in time. What I loved about this this week is it brought back to my mind, I, sh I should say the spirit brought back to my mind. It's the 2019 video because of him. It's the Easter video. And there's this great message. It's just a series of images and videos, but there's this man speaking in the background and he talks about how the Savior brought an end to a lot of things. I wrote it in my margins. I put it in the notes if you want to go find it, but that fear will die, 
pain will die, loneliness will die, despair will die, sadness, sickness, deformity, disability, darkness, anxiety, war will die, hatred will die, and ultimately death will die. But because of him, we will live again. That's the message of, you don't want to just focus on the fact that all men will die. It's that all those other things die with it. It's, it's just a beautiful, hope-filled message that you can find if you dig into these verses a little bit. What I love is where it kind of comes to a climax at 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Redemption is different than resurrection. Resurrection comes to all men. Redemption is... It encompasses resurrection, but it means you can be redeemed, you can be saved. So where resurrection happens unconditionally to everyone, redemption is conditional. It, it comes on our willingness to obey his commandments and to make covenants. And there's a whole bunch more you can learn in the notes. But I sort of love that that's where we begin this week's study, because I think everything we study after this actually refers back to this same message. So when you roll into 50, you see even more. This is talking about the second coming. Um, oftentimes in these Psalms, they were they will talk about a king, like we spoke about last week. They'll talk about a king in this day, in the Old Testament day, like King David or King Solomon. And they'll use that as a type for the Messiah who will come as the great king of kings. And that's what you're going to see when you go into Psalm 50. They talk a little bit about Zion, this idea of it being a light. And there's a whole bunch more we can study. We covered a lot of that in the Doctrine and Covenants. But I love that what we know about Zion, that to be a Zion people means that you're unified, that you're deciding to be holy, and that you're going to take care of all the poor and the needy. That is a, you can't be a people who covets anything and be a Zion society. In fact, one of the doctrines I love about Zion is that there will be no rich or poor among them. That means Coveting isn't an issue. You know, the wealthy and the poor can covet and get into trouble. So in Zion, that's not going to be an issue. And since Zion is a place and a people, I think there's a lot of work for us to do. I really love the way, I think it's Elder Uchtdorf, it's in the notes, but he talks about this principle of we create Zion. Sometimes we get in this mindset of, oh, I can't wait till the Savior comes again so we can have Zion. And I, I think the prophets have been pretty clear that Zion is something we need to make happen within our hearts and then it will come to be. It's something we, we, we we're a part of that fulfillment. Um, and I just think that's powerful. Another thing I love in 50 is this idea that when he comes again, it will not be silent. So in three, our God shall come and shall not keep silence. So where we sing Silent Night and we talk about his birth being this very quiet, peaceful arrival, uh, his second coming will be very different. <laughs> We're going to read a little bit more about it. It will not be a silent night. It will be a, a day of rejoicing and a day of lament, depending on where you've been and how you've lived your life so far. Uh, so you'll see that in 50. When you flip the page, he talks a little bit about the righteous and the wicked. Um, some of the things I think are powerful is at the very beginning, like in seven, he talks about that the righteous means you are someone who makes covenants and you are someone who sacrifices. That's a key component of a righteous life, that it's not just I'm good. It means I covenant. I'm a child of the covenant and I make sacrifices in order to fulfill that covenant. That's a big component of it. When you go a little further, like 16 to 23 or so, he starts talking about the opposite side of that coin, the wicked who are struggling. And he gives them some advice on how they got there and how to get out of it. So one of the things I did when in my scriptures is I actually connected the word wicked in 16 all the way up to 22, where it talks about who these people are. And it says, now consider this, ye that forget God. I don't think wicked mean, means you have a an evil disposition in your heart. It means you've forgotten your covenants or you've forgotten who you are a little bit, and he's trying to kind of reclaim you. So he talks about some of the things that will happen. So those who are wicked or those who have forgotten God tend to hate instruction. If you look at like 16 and 17, talks about how they've cast his words behind them. It's this assumption that you understood them at some point in time, and then now you've kind of set them off to the side. Oh, there's poignant warning in that one. Also in 18, that they're getting comfortable being around those who sin. I think these kind of verses are really powerful, especially with teenagers, because these are temptations that happen all the time, right? Where I'm going to either set the words of God to the side, they don't apply to me, or I'm going to be around people who pull me down. <laughs> There's warning there that even if you think you're solid, if you're surrounding yourselves with those who are not, you're going to falter. There's You'll forget God. And that's his warning. Uh, if you look at 19, you see even a little bit more that thou givest thy mouth to evil and thy tongue frameth deceit. I really like this phrase, thou givest thy mouth. I think 
what he's trying to teach us is we have to be really careful about our labels. Remember when we talked about President Nelson and how he he warned the um, the single adults that they need to be careful about labels. That when you when you wear a label for a cause or a brand that you are endorsing that brand, even if you don't realize all the parts of their platform. That's something I think our teenagers have to be really cognizant of that when you choose to do that, you're basically giving your mouth to them. You're saying, Hey, I I'm on your team. You can, you can pick my words for me. And that can cause you to forget God. So that's something we have to be really careful about. Another one I love is in 20, thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. That idea of sitting and speaking. I just see this as a kind of, um, you know, like when Laman and Lemuel were grumpy about the boat and Nephi's trying to build a boat and he needs help. And it tends to be the people who don't have tools in their hands, who, who have all kinds of complaints about the boat, you know, the people who are not engaged in the work, sit and have a lot to say about why the motives are, what they are and how things are shaking out. And I think you see that in our world today. You see a lot of people who are off to the side, not participating in this great work, who have all kinds of commentary to say about how we're doing. <laughs> so I think there's good warning in there that that's something that can cause you to forget your God. Um, and I just love the way it wraps up this idea of, if you are wondering, he talks about how God will set things in order. I think right now, from our mortal perspective, it's difficult to discern how things should be ordered in our thoughts and our understandings of how things work. And what I love is the simplicity of the God's way that is love the Lord your God with all your heart and then love your fellow men. And what I love is the principle of the better I love my God, the more wholehearted I am and understanding who he is and why I love him, the better I can get revelation about how I can help my fellow men. But they can't be in the wrong order. So in these last couple of verses, he warns about both those things that it, he will teach the wicked where they were out of line and he thanks the righteous who are putting things in the right order. So I think there's a lot to learn no matter where you are. If the introduction to this psalm is accurate, this psalm was written really shortly after David was discovered by Nathan. Remember, he didn't come and confess to Nathan the prophet. Nathan gave him that parable about the sheep and the shepherd and then David confessed. And now he is he is despairing <laughs> at and where he is spiritually. And you can feel that. He asks Lord in verse one to have mercy on him, to blot out his transgressions. He asks to be washed and cleansed. He knows his sin is before him. You can see that in four. It's just this ache. He has this ache. When I was teaching the YSAs, I talked to them about um, the way I pictured this is always with a swimming pool, that there's a, a lot of phases in your life where you're so deep in the gospel. You're learning, especially like a lot of them have just come off a mission and they're in that zone and they've been in warm water for a long time. And then to all of a sudden step out of that water and be somewhere else, there is a sudden chill. <laughs> One of my uh, YSAs talked about how when she came home from a mission, she tried to hang out with some of her old friends and could tell immediately that that wasn't a good spot to be. And I think it's, she didn't even realize necessarily how powerfully she was feeling the spirit all the time because it was like being in a warm swimming pool. But as soon as she stepped out of that warm pool, she could tell, oh, now I don't have it. And I think that's where David is. He is realizing how much distance there is between this God that he has loved since his childhood, who helped him defeat giants. You know, like he loves God and he's realizing how big the gap is and he's mourning for it and pleading for help. Um, and we can't go into all the verses. You can learn a little bit more in the notes, but I, I love the repentance process that you see laying out here that he, he's not just trying to change his behavior. David doesn't just say, well, never mind, I'll set aside my experience with Bathsheba, or never mind, I'm, I'm not going to murder anybody again, again in the future. He knows he's going to need a change of heart. And that tells you that he actually knows the gospel really well. He knows that he can't create this change of heart in himself. He has to plead with the Lord to do it for him. The same way I couldn't perform a heart surgery on myself and give myself a transplant, you can't ask for, you can't create your own new heart. You can do a lot of good. But as Elder Rasband says, that's just miserable behavior modification. <laughs> so unless you involve the Savior and you take hold of the atonement of Jesus Christ, you're, you're missing something. You, you don't get the opportunity for a new heart. So that's what you see David pleading for in 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He just wants to hold it. In 6, he talked about how the Lord knows he needs to correct his inward parts. He's, he's looking in, just as he should, in any kind of 
um, repentance process. Uh, President Nelson has a quote on this where he says, the, how do you do this? How do you create a new heart? How do you help this happen? He said, the answer is really simple. Every time it is to make and keep covenants. When you make and keep covenants, over time, a new heart is created. Sometimes it happens really quickly, like we see with, you know, Alma the Younger or King Lamoni, or sometimes there is a rush of a new heart that happens. Most of the time, I think it comes line upon line and layer upon layer. And that's what you'll see with David's story. I love how he talks about the spirit in 11. It says, cast not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David has grown up understanding who he is. You know, he was anointed as a small boy to be king. And I think he grew up knowing that he had this divine nature and eternal destiny. And he's had the spirit with him to conquer Goliath and to hold back when Saul was chasing after him. And, you know, like he had opportunities to kill Saul and he never did it because he had the spirit with him to restrain him. And he had the spirit with him to help him in these huge battles so that they could win Jerusalem. And he's had the spirit so long and now he's feeling what it's like to be without it. And he is aching for it back. So he's pleading with the Lord, please give me that connection with thee. But I think he knows it's going to take some time. So if you look down in 17, the sacrifices of God, well, 16 says that he's not, the Lord's not asking for sacrifices, like burnt offering sacrifices. He wants something more. So in 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, that wilt thou not despise. Broken heart, like we've talked about before, is not devastated, although that kind of accompanies it. Um, it means you are open. When I think of broken, I think of broken soil or even a broken seed. When a seed is broken, if you've ever seen those time-lapse videos of a seed growing, it has to break apart for the, for the sprout to shoot up. That's the same principle of a broken heart. It means I am open and vulnerable to whatever God wants to do with me. <laughs> and that's where David needs to get. He needs that broken heart and that contrite spirit. What I love about this, there's a great quote in the notes. I think it's from Elder Porter, if I remember right. It's Sister Porter's husband who passed away a while ago. And he talks about how this broken heart concept gets remedied when we read Isaiah. So when you read Isaiah 61.1, he talks about how he will bind up the brokenhearted. That's the promise that no matter how raw and vulnerable and broken we feel, the Savior's role is to bind up that heart and to create a new one in its place. And I love reading those together. Psalm 61 to 64 is kind of like this quick staccato of powerful praises of God and also advice about what to do when you're struggling. So if you start in Psalm 61, you'll see this epic advice. I love it. It's in verse two. It says, from the end of the earth will I cry unto thee when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I love this because so many of my struggles are because of my mortal vantage point. I know he can see things I can't see. I know there is clarity at a different elevation. I just can't, can't see it. So I love this promise that in your prayers, pray for a higher vantage point. I think sometimes that means you're going to have to sacrifice more. You're going to have to come closer to him in order to step up to see higher. But I love that David understands that you can get higher. In fact, he trusts in this rock that, that he can step up to a higher rock and he'll understand things better. The rest of the chapter talks about the rock. In fact, Psalm 61 and 62 talk about this rock and this salvation. What I love about that doctrine, I mean, there's so many powerful reasons why the rock is a really good connection tool for understanding the Savior. I think Sister Bingham talked all about it in her conference talk, but I love what we learn when you add in the doctrine from the Doctrine and Covenants. So if you go in the notes, you can find some links to this, these verses. But basically, it's not so much just believing in Jesus Christ. The rock of our salvation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's living his gospel. Because living his gospel is what brings us to him. Those saving ordinances that we need bring us to him. That refining that happens as we keep the commandments, as we make and keep covenants, that's what brings us to him. Sometimes I think we talk about this rock and this foundation, like it's just this, well, I believe in Jesus and we can just kind of stake our claim, but it's a lot more than that. It means I'm willing to come and become like him. So you'll see that in the verses you go from 61 to 62. Some other things you'll see when you jump into 63 and 64. 63 is David's plead, pleading for water. 
we talked a little bit about this last week, this living water, but you see it again in 63 where he talks about how thirsty is. Oh God, thou art my God. This is verse one. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Again, I think David has lived his life in a warm pool of the spirit. He's enjoyed that comfort for a long time and through his own mistakes is now apart. He's now realizing how vulnerable he is. I kind of felt like this when we went to Israel, where we'd be in places that were so lush and so green. And then you get on the bus and I'm not kidding, like within a half a mile, you're out in this desert where you know you would die if the bus shut down. That's what David is experiencing. He didn't realize how close to destruction he has always been because he's been in the comfort of the spirit. He's had that closeness and now he can feel it. So he talks about how he wants to come back into his sanctuary. These are temple references, um, just like we studied with the tabernacle, this idea of coming to the veil and, you know, the high priest coming to come into that Holy of Holies. You'll kind of see that progression happen in these verses where he wants to come and he wants to speak with the Lord vocally. He wants to plead with him. He wants the, the shadow of the wings. You know, when we talked about the Holy of Holies, how they have those big cherubims with the wings. He wants to be in the presence of God. That's what he's pleading for. And in 11, we learn how you can do that. And that is to make covenants. One of the things I loved about Sister Bingham's talk in conference was that she talked about how covenants are our ability to tap into a power source. Sometimes I think we think of covenants as something we have to kind of do in order for God to know that we're still on board. <laughs> and although that's technically true, I think it's living below our privileges if we don't realize what the covenants offer us. It's an endowment of power. The, the visual I have in my head is my son Jack always carries around a battery pack, you know, like a big fat battery pack for his phone and a cord at all times. You'll see it in Jack's hand or in his pocket. What I love about that is my phone never runs out of power because even if I neglected to take care of it as well as I could have, I can tap into Jack's power bank and I can get filled up again. That's the promise of our covenants that they are an endowment of power to be able to do things you can't naturally do. If you rely on those covenants and you're honoring those covenants, you are endowed with power. That doesn't mean you're going to choose to use it. We could carry around that power bank for days and days. If I don't choose to plug into it, I'm missing it. So that's kind of the idea of covenants is that we need to learn not just how to make them, but how to keep them and how to use them, how to strengthen ourselves in this mortal world because we have access to God's power. And I just think there's so much more we can learn about that. I don't have time to go into it today, but that's what you're going to find when you go into 63. 64 is a little bit different. This is where he talks about how to withstand enemy attack. But interestingly, this is not enemies on a battlefield. This is enemies of words, which is exactly where my enemies are and your enemies are. We don't tend to get attacked physically. We get attacked with words. And David talks about how hard that is. So if you look in three, he says, there are those who wet their tongue like a sword and they bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words that they may shoot in secret at the perfect. Suddenly do they shoot at him and fear not. It's this... Um, I don't think David thinks he's perfect. In fact, we know David knows he's not perfect. That's what he's told us in all these other verses. I think the doctrine that he studies is, I think the savior that he is trusting in is perfect and people are taking shots there. That's what I see in our day as well, that there are those who are taking shots and they're kind of like this. They're bitter words that come out of nowhere and you can't really feel out where the source was or who started that rumor in the first place. That's, it almost feels like a creepy sniper attack. Do you remember those from like the early 2000s where a guy would hide in his trunk and shoot at people? And it was like this level of evil. I, I, that's a dramatic example, but I feel like that's kind of what happens in our day, that people are taking shots, not at the people who are in the church, although maybe those are kind of, that happens as well. But the deeper problem is that they are taking shots at what the atonement of Jesus Christ can do. The atonement of Jesus Christ is limitless in its ability to heal and to help and to redeem. And the people in the world are taking shots at that doctrine. They want you to believe that there are limits and that there are boundaries and they're not real. And I just, that, that's what jumped out at me as I was studying in 64. But I love where it ends. So if you look at the end, he says in verse 10, the righteous shall be glad in the Lord and shall trust in him and all the upright in heart shall glory. That's the promise, right? That if you are choosing to be good, that no matter what arrows come at you, it, you'll be like Samuel the Lamanite on his wall, right? That they will, you'll feel the wind and you'll see them coming and you'll be scared, but they cannot 
pull you down, especially if what they're really aiming for is the power of Jesus Christ, because that cannot be shaken. It cannot be taken out. So if that's what you're endorsing and that's what you're speaking about, no arrow can touch you. And I love that you see that in the Old Testament as well as in the Book of Mormon. Psalm 65 and 66 are psalms of praise and thanksgiving, and they're just phrased beautifully. In fact, one of my favorites, this might be my interpretation of this verse, but I love what you see in 65 verse 4. It's talking about those who come to the temple who are worthy to go there. Blessed is the man who thou choosest and causest to approach thee, come close in the temple, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even thy holy temple. How, here's what the Spirit taught me as I was studying this verse. Some parts of the temple, I still struggle to understand. I think that applies to everybody, right? We even have prophets who talk about at the end of their life, how they're still learning new things in the temple. So sometimes I get caught up in my head and I think I'm doing something wrong because I'm not understanding anything big or new. And I, I worry that I'm missing something. What I love about this verse is that I can choose to be satisfied with the goodness. Satisfied doesn't mean I'm full. It doesn't mean I've reached capacity. It means there's enough. And that's how I feel about the temple when I go today, <laughs> that when I go, there are things that I don't understand and there are things that I know are good. I can't even necessarily articulate why I know they're good or how I know. I just can feel that they are good. And so I choose to be satisfied with the goodness that I do understand while I wait for new light and knowledge to come. There's, it's that gateway of good that I've talked about a couple of times. There is power in choosing to be satisfied with goodness as you seek for more light and more knowledge. So you'll see that in there. The last part I actually love because it talks about, at least the way I read it, it's almost describing what will happen in the millennial reign of the Savior, that there will be this stilling of the noise of the world. So if you look around six, he talks about how he was going to set fast the mountains. Seven, that he will still the noise of the seas, the waves, and the tumult of the people. That one's my favorite because I feel like that's what I feel, I, that's what we're experiencing constantly is this tumult of noise. <laughs> But I don't think it means that the millennial reign will be quiet. I think what it means is there will be a better noise heard. All the contention and the wars and the fighting will be set aside and die, as we talked about in the last psalm. And then in 66, you see that what's coming is a joyful noise unto God. There will be an amplification of goodness and a quieting of all else. You go a little further, you see like in 9 of Psalm 65, that thou, the water that is coming, this river of God that will nourish the soil. And you can go further in the verses and see more. It talks about a crown. It talks about soft showers that will fall. There's an abundance of crops and flocks and just this pure goodness that will have all of our needs met. There will be beauty abounding and we will be nourished. And that is why when you jump into Psalm 66, there is a joyful noise. So they will sing. It's, you know, I'm not a singer. I, I, that's not one of my talents per se, but I love to listen to someone else make a joyful noise. And I, that's how they will worship. In fact, one of the things I thought was really cool about 66 is for the first half, he talks about this kind of communal worship that we will gather. In fact, I circled all the we's, the plural forms that we are going to gather, we are going to sing. And then by about halfway through, so at around, around verse 12 or so, it breaks. That's where we, all the we's and the hours shift into I will, I will do. To me, this is kind of like what you see at a testimony meeting where we all come together and we praise and we sing and we pray together. And then there are opportunities to worship individually where I stand and I bear my witness, where I partake of the sacrament for myself and I receive that gift. There are parts of our worship that are communal and gathering specific, and there are parts of our worship that are individual. And I love that Psalm 66 shows you both of those. So there's some good stuff in 66. On the other Psalms I've written, like Psalm of Thanksgiving, Psalm of Praise. This one I call the Psalm of Desperation. This is David's desperate pleading for relief. And it's also a messianic Psalm. So it's actually written in a way to evoke imagery of the Savior, especially the Savior suffering on the cross. And we'll see some of that kind of woven through the verses, but your heart just breaks for it. And honestly, I think it pulls, at least for me, it pulled back nights or days where I felt similar. I don't know that I've ever been in the same spot as David, but I felt similar fear. Uh, so if you look in verse one, save me, O God, for the waters are coming in unto my soul. He can see waves of pain and grief coming towards him and he is afraid. In fact, in two, he says, I sink deep in the mire where there is no standing. He can't, his foot can't get purchased. You know, he's like trying to 
flail and catch himself and he can't do it. If you've ever fallen and you, you tried to scramble to save yourself and you just can't hold on, that's where he feels. I'm coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. Overflow me. Three, I am weary of my crying. My throat is dry. Mine eyes fail while I wait for God. That one got me that I, we've had nights like this, right? Right after, I remember right after Jason's first pancreatic cancer diagnosis, we had, I think I've told you guys before, it's, we call it the paper towel night because it was a night where we cried so much by our bedside that we couldn't use the tissues anymore. So I had to go in the bathroom and get a roll of paper towels. And that's what we used to soak up tears because it was hard. It was a hard night. And it felt like this where I could just see this flood of hard coming at us. And it wasn't here yet, but I could tell it was coming. And I felt powerless to stop it. And that's kind of where David's at. He just feels powerless. Um, I think that's why he says there's no standing. His foot can't catch anything. He can't hold himself up. He needs the Lord. And I think that's part of the reason we're allowed to experience those paper towel night cries. Because when you get to the point where you can't stand, you turn to the Lord wholeheartedly. And what I love is that the Lord is there. It's, it's abide with me, right? When other comforts fail, what is it? When other helpers fail and comforts flee, that's the promise uh, that will come. So if you look through the verses, you'll see it. He's, he's in deep waters. He's out of tears. If you look in 16, he talks about how he's going to turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. He's pleading with the Lord to just he knows the character of the Lord and he knows the Lord can give him all these things. And he's just asking for it to be, to be sent his way. And I just love it. Um, and when you a little bit further, he talks about his heaviness. So in 20 reproach hath broken my heart. I'm full of heaviness. This is again, I think where you see the messianic tone, um, where he's been betrayed. He's been spit on, he's been wounded. Um, and he is full of heaviness and there is no comfort. He searched for comfort and he found none. I actually think there's a lot we can learn there because I think sometimes in our lives, we search for comfort in a hundred other places before we turn to God. <laughs> you know, we seek numbing sometimes or other comforts. And I think these verses are trying to remind us that there is a shortcut in your grief. It doesn't mean your grief will end, but there is comfort that can come. And I love it. The other thing I really thought was powerful is this imagery that he uses about the pit and the waters. He talks about how he doesn't want the pit to close in around him. I think it's in verse... 15 and how the waters, he doesn't want them to overwhelm him. Uh, to me, I read that and understand that that means he's looking up and there is still light. There is still hope. Um, the pit hasn't closed yet. And what I believe, what I've come to count on is that in those moments where I feel the suffocating fear or grief or pain, you can choose to look at the 98% around you that is hard, or you can choose to look at that one spot of light and trust that it can get bigger. And when you hold that 2% spot of light and let it grow, uh, it can expand. It will expand. It just, you have to wait on the Lord. And that's what he says in 13. I will, ex I will wait for an acceptable time. Oh God, that is his promise. He's going to wait on the Lord as long as it takes. Um, and that's something that I think we see in the Savior's example as well. You, you'll get that all throughout Psalm 69, and it's just powerful. These next three Psalms, 70, 71, and 72, have a, a praise tone to them. And I'll go a little faster through them, simply because a lot of the doctrine that's in them we've actually covered in other chapters. You, you hear this repeated gratitude. And I think there's a message in that for us as well. I think oftentimes we, at least for me, oftentimes when I receive an answer to my prayer or I understand what to do next, I thank God. I don't know that I then thank him later. And then the week after that, I think I move on maybe a little too fast from my praise, but that's kind of what you're going to learn from David in these verses. So when you go into 70, he asks, he's still asking for God to deliver him. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. He's asking, he's, he's willing to submit to the Lord's timetable. We saw that in 69, but he's also eager to have it be hurried up. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that kind of prayer. I think it's fine to ask for those blessings. We just have to be willing to submit to whatever his will is. So I, I think there's a lot to learn on both sides of that. Uh, I love what you see in four though. In this verse, he says, let all those who seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. That first part of the verse, I think there is joy in the seeking. David hasn't found God fully yet. He's not reconnected fully, um, but he finds joy in the search. And that I can relate to. Um, there are times when I don't have answers, but in that process of trying to find answers where I'm combing through my scriptures or I'm going to the temple or I'm looking to outside sources like people's testimonies or conference talks, 
there is joy that comes in the seeking. In fact, sometimes I think he doesn't give me the answers because he knows I'm actually going to get joy out of the hunt. <laughs> so I just think there's peace in that verse. I also love how it talks about God being magnified. I, we talked a little bit about this last week, but I love that principle of he, David, even if he can't, God can't be seen fully, God, he can be bigger. He can be a more clear definition. And that's what David is hoping to do. In five, he talks about how he is poor and needy. He knows his state. I mean, he's the king. He's in no way poor or needy. So this is a spiritual neediness. And he knows he needs the Lord. It sounds like King Benjamin's advice about, are we not all beggars? I think we're all in this state and we know we need the Lord. So that's some of the things you'll see in 60 or 70. When you jump into 71, this is that same doctrine, doctrine of incline your ear unto me, Lord. So you see that in two, he talks about his rock and his fortress. Again, we kind of talked about this, so I'm going to breeze through it, but you could spend a lot of time in each of these verses. For me, the resounding message of 71 is this message of hope, that he's going to lean on hope. In fact, I circled all the words hope and I kind of tied them all together. So like in five, thou art my hope, O Lord God. Thou art my trust from my youth. You see that same message echoed on the other side of the page when in 17, he says, Oh God, thou hast taught me from my youth and hitherto I have declared thy wondrous works. He and the Lord have had a close connection since he was a little kid, you know, since he was anointed by Samuel. So he's had this connection with the Lord and he wants it back again. So in 14, I will hope continually. I will praise thee more and more that his praise amplifies even when he doesn't have it fulfilled. He doesn't, he doesn't have that connection to the Lord. And yet David continues to praise and not just praise, but praise more and more as he waits on the Lord. That tells me a lot about David's heart and his integrity, but there's a bunch more. If you go on the verses, we're going to go skip a little bit further. When you go into 72, this is where you see a little bit more about this millennial reign. It's written to Solomon. So David's son, but again, Solomon is a type of Christ in these verses, so it's supposed to talk about the ultimate reign of the king of kings, but it's spoken in a way that teaches about Solomon, this king, who was righteous for a season. Remember, Solomon built the temple, so there is some a good phase of Solomon's reign that I think we're kind of talking about here, but really it's supposed to teach us about the millennial reign. And some of the things you're going to see is about Christ being our advocate. So when you look around verse 2, that he shall judge the people with righteousness. He is our advocate. He is one who seeks to help and to endorse and to strengthen, um, that he saves the children, that he like reigns. So if you look in verse six, he talks about rain. It's interesting to me because most of the time in the scriptures, when you talk about the savior coming again, it talks a lot about fire. And I love that in this verse, it talks about rain as that same force that will divide the, the wicked from the good. So he shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. We had an epic rainstorm. We used to live in the Midwest where we had awesome rain all the time. And in Utah, we don't have awesome rain. But just in the last couple of weeks, we had big downpours that like I hadn't seen since my Ohio days. So I loved that visual because if you have ever been in an epic rainstorm like that, you know what happens. Like things that don't have root get washed away and things that have some kind of structure to them can withstand it. But I, it's interesting to me that fire can be a metaphor for the Savior's coming and so can water. They they both are designed to purify and cleanse. And I love that the Savior is embodied in both of those big elements, those like avatar type elements. So you'll see that in the verses as well. The, the other thing I really think is powerful in these verses, you have to flip over the page to get to it. There's more, but if you go on the notes, you'll see more. But they talk about his, how every knee shall bow. I mean, those aren't the words that are in here, but talking about Solomon as a king, that all nations will come to him and bow, teaches us about the Savior, how at some point when he comes again, all will bow to him and that there will be this abundance. So a lot of the verses will talk about this abundance of crops, this abundance of flocks, all this goodness that will come. And my favorite is in 18. So if you flip over into 18, it says, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. What I love about this verse is, like I've mentioned a couple of times, Elder Holland gave a devotional in the spring of, I think, last year, where he talked about how God can only do good. It's his nature to do good. And everything he does is for our good. So I give you a link in the notes to that quote, because I think that's one we mix up sometimes, where we think God gives us adversities or gives us troubles. And uh, I think most of the time those just happen because of the life that we're in and the nature of mortality. But God always gives good. All his works are wondrous works. If there is a hint of giving, inflicting something upon us, it's because he's trying to work something together for our good. The same way, you know, when you take two elements like chlorine and sodium, they can come together to make salt, which is good, but the two elements on their own are poisonous. So I feel like there's power in understanding 
that God only gives good or things that are intended to work together for our good. Hopefully you'll see some of that in these verses. We're going to go to 77 and 78 next. And what I love about these two Psalms is I feel like they give us some tips on how to come out of those devastating days, strategies we can use. So the first two come in 77. So you can see where he's in that same feeling. He's crying unto the Lord with his voice in verse one. In two, his soul refused to be comforted. I actually loved that phrase because it's the same phrase we read with Enoch. Do you remember when we were in the book of Moses and we studied how Enoch saw in vision the flood that was coming and he was devastated for the state of the world and all the souls that would be lost. And what the Lord told him in that moment, he uses the same phrase, my soul refuseth to be comforted. And the Lord's response was to look up and be glad. And what he looked up and saw was the redemption of Jesus Christ, the atonement that would occur. That's what we can look up to. So in that moment, even though there, the devastation was real and the pain that was going to come was absolutely real, we can, in those moments, look to Jesus Christ and trust in this gift that has come our way. That's what pulled Enoch out of that devastating moment. And it's what pulls this psalmist out of his moment. He looks to God and he remembers. That's what the other tip is to remember. So if you look and you, for me, I actually circled or underlined all the words that kind of hint at remembrance, like meditate or remember, or any of those words that kind of jump off the page. When you can't feel God close, or you can't find answers for this day's problem, a big strategy is to remember that God does answer. <laughs> so for me, I have certain places where I go to pray where I know I have received answers. And sometimes I'll just go back to those places. <laughs> it's kind of like my pile of stones that we talked about with, you know, after they crossed the Jordan River and they made that pile of stones to remember. That's what those places are to me. Even if I don't get an answer there this time, I know that I did get an answer there and there's power in it. Um, and that's what he's asking you to do to go remember, not just things that have happened in your life, but meditate on the things that have happened in your ancestors' lives. If not your direct ancestors, the children of Israel as your ancestors, because he's done wonders. In fact, that's the word he uses in 14. Thou art the God that doest wonders, that thou hast declared thy strength among the people. If we choose not to see the wonders, it's us that have been blinded. It's not that they haven't occurred. Go look at almost any verse that we've studied this year, any story, and you see the wonders of God. And those are your people. The children of Israel are our people. So we can lean on that remembrance. Uh, when you go into 78, you see some guidance about what to do with those remembrances. It's not just supposed to be for us. It's also supposed to be for the next generation. So kind of like I talked about once before, I heard Anthony Sweat speak about this at Time Out for Women, about how our obligation is to carry on the covenant that's what we've seen all throughout the Old Testament. Your job is not just to enjoy the blessings of the covenant life, but to pass it on to the next generation. So there is this unending chain of, you know, the Heavenly Father's children connected all together. That's what he's asking us to do. So he's warning you that you can't just take this into yourself. So like in four, we will not hide them from our children, showing them, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, his strength, his wonderful works that he hath done. We can't be the ones who break the covenant chain. We have to pass on what we know. That means you're passing on those remembrances. So it's not enough for me to like go to my bridge that helps me remember that I get answers to prayers. I need to take my kids to that bridge. I need to help them understand that this is where I get answers to prayers and that prayers do get answered. That's what he's trying to teach us, that it's not enough to take the goodness for yourself. You need to pass it on to the next generation. And then the rest of the Psalm kind of talks about that. It reminds me of Second Nephi, where he talks about, we talk of Christ, we rejoice of Christ, we preach of Christ. And the whole point of all this chatter about Christ is to help our children know where to look for remission of their sins. Because think about what we've seen with David. I don't know how great of a dad Jesse was, but clearly he must have taught his son, or maybe he learned it from Samuel, but he, David knew in this moment where he could look for remission of his sins. And that made all the difference in David's world. Sometimes we think about teaching our children their ancestor stories or teaching the children the scripture stories um, as a way to kind of help them stay on the covenant path. But I also think it's a way to get bring them back when they are far astray, that the Spirit can bring all those things to their remembrance and it will pull them back. That's the promise. So I love that. So all the rest of this chapter is stories of deliverance. The psalm is all about when the Israelites were delivered. And I'm not going to go into it because it's kind of a recap of what we studied in the Old Testament. But there, the message to me was to be purposeful and transparent, not just in the miracles I've seen in the world around me, but the miracles I've experienced in my heart. In fact, one of the things I learned from David's message over and over again in these Psalms is 
he took time to teach me about, about a change of heart. Sometimes when I teach my kids about miracles, we talk about Jason's cancer being stopped. You know, we've had almost six years where he, he shouldn't have been here. And that, that is miraculous. And I've testified of that a lot to my kids. I don't know that I've testified nearly as much about the miraculous repentance processes I have felt where I have been in a spot where I needed help and I made mistakes and I was healed. I was clean where I wasn't before. Those are miracles that deserve our testimony as well. That's, that's the message I get out of Psalm 78. We're going to tie things up in Psalm 85 and 86. It's, it's this ending scene, this winding up where they are, they've just recounted all these miracles that the Lord has done for their people. And now they're hoping he'll do it again. <laughs> I think that's what most of our prayers are, right? We, we know we've seen the hand of God in our lives in the past, and we are just hoping that we can get that again. So you'll see that he, they remind him in two, you've covered all, all of our sin in the past. In four, you've, you've let your anger go in the past. Could you do it again? And then in six, will thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? What I love about this phrase that will you just revive us? It's this, I want a, I want a wellspring of goodness to, re, to like replenish me. That's the visual I get. The answer that they get is exactly that. So if you flip the page from 10 and 11, you see a promise of truth that will come forth. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth. If you go on the footnotes, you can see this is a direct reference to the Book of Mormon coming forth. It's this restoration where they were seeking to be revived. The answer that the Lord gives is, oh, there's, there's a restoring coming and it's going to come forth in the truth that comes out of the earth. And it's just powerful. The, the spring analogy is so good to me. It's, um, it's not a coiled spring. It's a spring like a mountain spring that gushes out pure, clean water. If you look at your water bottles, they say 100% pure mountain spring water. That's what it is. It's this water that has been filtered through the soil, the mountain, and has sprung forth. We're going to talk about this in the object lessons, but it's such a good metaphor for what happened in the restoration because it came out of an unexpected place. Just like a mountain spring will all of a sudden come out of this unexpected place. It will gush forth and heal things anywhere in its path. It's something that never ends. A mountain spring doesn't dry up the same way other things do. They, they continue to get rainwater and they gush out. There are so many ways that this ties together. I just love the visual of it. When you go into 86, it kind of wraps things up. He, This is David again, pleading for connection with the Lord. Um, I love what it says in 4. David says, Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. That's David to me for to a T. He, I almost picture the way you would have to lift up a sacrificial animal to put it on the altar. It's that, but he's doing it with his whole heart and his whole soul. And he's he knows he's made big mistakes and he knows he doesn't deserve this forgiveness and he can't earn it. He's just putting everything he can up there. And because he chooses to do that, he obtains deliverance. In 13, he says, for great is thy mercy toward me and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. It's important to understand that because of more modern revelation, what we get in the Doctrine and Covenants in section 132, I don't know what this means. I don't know if this is deliverance in the way we would normally expect it, or if this is just deliverance from the awful state of life that happened after. Remember, after the Bathsheba and Uriah incident, things kind of fell apart for David. His family was infighting, his sons turned against him, all kinds of hard happened. So sometimes I wonder if this deliverance that he's talking about is more a personal deliverance, how he felt in his lifetime as he's writing this Psalms, that even though things were so hard, he found, he found peace through the Savior. Or maybe there's more to his exaltation that we don't understand. I don't know. Thankfully, I don't have to figure that out because that's not my territory. That's the Lord's. So I just think what we have to take from this is that there is peace and there is power in turning to God. Even when you feel like you are far from him. That's what David's example teaches me. I love how he wraps up in 15. He talks about how the Lord, thou art a God full of compassion gracious, long-suffering, plenteous in thy mercy and truth. And then 17, thou, Lord, hast hope in me and comforted me. No matter if we are on the covenant path and kind of doing our best, or if we are far off, the promise of the Lord's compassion and long-suffering and mercy can help us feel peace. We can feel helped. We can feel comforted. That is the message of David. And it kind of reverberates throughout all history. I just think it's powerful. 
Thanks for joining me for some of the insights from this week's course. As you know, I'm a big believer in finding ways to apply the doctrine into our family's lives. So in addition, coming up next, you're going to hear one of the object lessons from this week's course. Each week, I have three object lessons to kind of help you apply these scriptures to your family's lives. But I thought I'd give you a sneak peek of one of those coming up next. The second object lesson is to help your kids learn about the atonement of Jesus Christ and how they can use it to repent and to become clean again. I think one of the adversary's favorite tools is to make us feel like whatever mistakes we've made cannot be remedied. They are too far gone. And I think what the Savior is constantly trying to teach us, especially in these Psalms and in most of the scriptures, is that you can be made clean again if you trusted him, if you go through that process. So this is a really simple way to teach about that concept. You just need two markers. So you need a Sharpie and you need an Expo marker. And you're going to take the Sharpie and you're actually going to color on a dry erase board. I know that feels wrong in a lot of ways, but trust me, it's going to work out. So you'll talk to your kids first about a Sharpie's qualities, like what makes this a dangerous tool in the hands of a kid. And they will tell you that it's permanent. Everything about it is permanent and it can't be removed. We've all experienced times when you've got this on your shirt or on your desk or something and and it can't be taken off. So every kid knows that about a permanent marker. And then you're going to talk about your dry erase board. You'll have them color on it and say, just draw, you know, something relatively small on that board and have them try and wipe it off. Once they've finished drawing it, grab a rag and have them try and wipe it. It might smudge a little bit, but the smudging almost makes it better because you can see how the board is now stained. To their understanding, it's probably stained beyond repair and it's damaged. But what I love about what the atonement of Jesus Christ offers is it is the ultimate lifter of stains. In fact, that's how David phrases it in several of his Psalms, that he will be white as snow again, that uh, stains will be lifted from him. And that's what we're going to show. So now you're going to want to take your Expo marker and you're going to talk about the atonement of Jesus Christ, that it basically functions like this marker. So you will color over anything that you've colored in Sharpie with this Expo marker. And then after you've colored over it, you don't even need to let it dry. You can take your rag and wipe it off and kind of magically all those Sharpie marks that should have created this permanent stain can be removed. It takes time. It takes effort, but they can be removed. And there's no simpler way to teach the power of the atonement. I think it is something where where your kids had a presumption about this marker that says, no, once that's on there, nothing, there's no good that can come from this. What the scriptures teach us is that the Savior has a way. If we are willing to let ourselves be covered by his power, by his atonement, there is a way. All stains can be lifted and can be removed. And that's the promise of the atonement. So hopefully two markers will help you pull that off. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos of the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.